This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. From MPB Think Radio, this is Money Talks. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. So the main purpose of Money Talks is to answer your personal finance questions. So if you have one this morning, you can email the show as well. Send it to money at mpbonline.org. Uh, to fill the time between your calls, though, we are going to talk today about maintaining good credit and also reviewing your credit report periodically to ensure that the information contained is accurate. So again, if you have a personal finance question, phone lines are open. Go ahead and give us a call. We like to start each Tuesday with thoughts on financial news in the um, in the news. Nancy, let's uh, let's you go first. Well, you know, uh, Ryder, we're talking about maintaining good credit. How mm-hmm. about the U.S. Oh credit? Goodness. Good <laughs> lord! Um, huge fight over the debt ceiling, which is a silly kind of a vote mm-hmm. since they've already approved a budget mm-hmm. and said this is what we're going to spend money on, and understand that the president doesn't. He only suggests a budget. He doesn't have control over the spending. Congress does. But now they're saying, we voted to spend this money, but we're not going to pay our bills. And we're going to talk about how that affects an individual's credit. (laughs) That can certainly affect the U.S. credit. So we're getting a lot of questions right now Mm -hmm. from clients who are concerned about that. And what I can tell them is that, um, yes, this will royal markets for a while. It causes a lot of uncertainty in the markets, in both the debt markets and the equity markets. Um, We have been through this before. We've come Mm -hmm. close at other times. We had one time when there was an actual default. And uh, we've seen the U.S. Treasuries actually being downgraded because we think of them as being the safest, Mm -hmm. most secure. Um, What I can say is they will all have a come-to-Jesus moment, and this will be temporary, but we're going to have to get through it. What do you think? Yeah, it's a lot of – and it's kind of frightening, too, because we're talking about huge numbers. We're yeah. talking about $30 trillion worth of debt, and it, it, politicians are just – it's just brinksmanship. They're just like, how close to the edge can we get, and how hard can we puff our chests out? Um, but at the end of the day, like you said, this is this is money that they already decided to spend. Right. And and we gotta we gotta pay our bills, guys. I mean, there's you know you you can have whatever principles you want, but if you if you commit to spending this money and you start spending it, you've got to pay your bills. You can't just go to a restaurant, order, eat half your meal, and be like, well, you know what? I I just decided, I just decided 
that I I don't want to pay for this now. Uh, so it's a lot of political grandstanding. It's just the worst of the worst in politicians. Uh, there are some real concerns. A lot of people, you could have all the opinions you want about spending and where the debt level is. It's a lot of money. Um, but every now and then, like you said, yeah. this is stuff we've done before. We've had these arguments over the debt limit before. Uh, there were a number of years, the past uh, kind of four or five years, where we didn't really have a whole lot of grandstanding over it. Everybody was was happy to keep raising that debt limit, happy to keep borrowing money to pay for the things that we want. But every now and then, people just get really testy about it. And understand that, um, you know, we collect, the government collects tax revenue Mm -hmm. every year from us. What they're collecting right now only covers about three quarters of what is needed. And so my big argument here is, and I, I keep waiting for this to happen, and I've been waiting for decades, for us to have a serious conversation about what we want government to be. And then once we all have an agreement about what we want government to be and what we want it to do for us, then we all have to figure out that we all have to pay for it. It's Mm -hmm. not a matter of, I'm going to get all these things and somebody else is going to pay for it. It's going to have to be shared. Right. Yeah. So so when you're saying that taxes cover three quarters of what we need. If we just magically collected 30% more taxes, we wouldn't need to worry about this debt limit because we wouldn't have to borrow this money. Is that, oh, you're, but you're, that, you're, those are fighting words. So, fighting so everybody, words, everybody right? needs to pitch in, do your part. Send 30% in, more taxes. Send yeah. in a tip. No, just kidding. You do not have to send the IRS a But tip. it is important for the U.S. to maintain a solid mm-hmm. uh, credit rating, just like as individuals we should. And we, in our business, say that the only thing is guaranteed up until this fight mm-hmm. is um, U.S. debt, U.S. treasuries. That's the only thing that we can say is... Is a guaranteed return. Yes, and and something that we have. Keep in mind, we've been able to have the country we have. We've been able to live the lifestyle as a as a nation because we've been borrowing money. We've been able to spend that money because we've been borrowing. And people are always like, "Oh, who do we borrow it from?" And everyone always says, "Oh, China foreign borrowers." No, it's us. The biggest borrowers, uh, the Social Security Administration, is basically a big old pile of U.S. Treasuries, and that's. Uh, not sure the numbers right now, but a third to a half, I want to say. Uh, banks, uh, U.S. banks, U.S. savers, uh, you think of your cash savings in a money market, a lot of that's going to be in treasuries. Think of your cash savings in a bond fund, a lot of that's going to be in treasuries. You probably own a lot of treasuries. If you own cash-like things, if you have money in the bank, that money, a lot of it is going to treasuries. Lots well, going to other stuff, but treasuries. Uh, yes, foreign countries do buy treasuries, and a lot of them are in some way forced to buy treasury. So example people always give is China. Well, we buy a lot of stuff from China. So we are sending over a lot of dollars. And treasuries are just, if you have dollars, the easiest thing to buy is U.S. treasuries. Yes, they can buy other U.S. dollar-denominated assets, but it's super easy to buy treasuries. And it's also very safe. They don't have to worry. And it's also regulatory wise because the US can prevent you know the Chinese government from buying too much property or too many stocks of ours but they can buy all the treasuries they want they can, they can just keep sending us money and we'll we'll spend it on whatever we want to 
Uh, Ryder, any other thing in the news catch your eye? Yes. So this past Sunday was a very important birthday in the financial world. It was the birthday of the first ETF, SPY. That is the um, also known as a spider. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So it's uh, so SPDR is is the kind of acronym they gave to the structure. It's the S and P Depository Receipt, which is essentially just uh, it's just a, a structure for the exchange traded fund. There are a lot of different structures for exchange traded fund, but this was the first one. Uh, came out 30 years ago in two days. Now, I did look up. I had it just here. The annualized return since it first launched was 9.53%. That's as as of uh, this past December 31st. So uh, not only is it, it's, it's one of the largest, I don't know if it's the largest right now because it kind of goes back and forth sometimes. It's one of the largest, certainly the largest S&P 500 fund. It just tracks the biggest 500 stocks in the U.S. as determined by the S&P uh, committee, and uh, it's done fairly well. So, yeah. and it's a it's a it's a it's a massive benchmark. It is it is very popular. Uh, that is the S and P five hundred index fund. It is having its birthday. And so again, that's a fund that that tracks the S and P five hundred mm-hmm. as opposed to someone deciding which which uh, what's in the basket. I guess that's correct. They've just decided, hey, whatever's in the S and P five hundred, we're buying all of that. Of course, S and P five hundred does change from time to time. They meet. The committee meets quarterly to see, oh, should we drop some companies that have gotten too small, add some companies that have grown a little bit. But it doesn't it doesn't change a whole lot. But it is big U.S. companies, mm-hmm. and that tells you with those numbers that uh, big U.S. companies have done very well for all the talk of, oh, my gosh, the sky is falling. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're still out there making money. Very well for a long time. It's, yeah. it's a great indication, you know, even when we have a year like we did last year, that uh, it's that long-term growth that you, you are investing for. Uh, I saw an article this morning that said that uh, consumers are underestimating uh, how much money it would take to buy a house. I think it was somebody like uh, the neighborhood of $100,000 that mm. they're expecting to pay X, and, and the average price was actually much more than that. Also, it said that uh, a lot of people are expecting a housing uh, crash. So talk a little bit about that. What, how, would, how does that affect things when people have an, an opinion like impending doom like that? Well, certainly, if you have impending doom in the housing market, that means a lot of buyers are sitting on the sidelines. So if you're in the position of you have to sell your house, you know, you're moving or you've already purchased Mm -hmm. a new one somewhere else, then you're in not a good spot because you're going to have to negotiate more. And um, we're seeing that because of this concern about dropping prices in housing, which you know, I, I troll real estate all the time. I'm looking at Zillow and Realtor. Who, who among that us? Is, no, I would love to watch that stuff. And, of course, it's all local, and I was just down in the panhandle of Florida, and those prices are just eye-popping. At the same time, I'm seeing drops in prices of 100000 plus. Mm. Um, we're seeing drops in prices in the Jackson area. You see five to $10,000 in a drop in price. Mm-hmm. And so that tells you that's all kind of coming back to earth, but it's not back to where it was before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing some of that just stabilize. I'm not concerned about a huge crisis, but rising mortgage rates certainly also keeps buyers on the sideline because you can't afford as much house. But maybe we're just coming back to reality. I I think real estate is an interesting, when you want to think about a market and how a market works, it's a really interesting example because everyone 
sees houses in their neighborhood go for sale or not. And they see that there's so many different facets to the purchase or sale of a home. And so a couple of the dynamics, we talked last week about mortgages and we've, and, you know, just from speaking with realtors and folks in the market for buying a home, some of the dynamics are that in the pandemic and so sort of for the past couple of years, houses have just been snapped up so quick because yeah. people, people just more people wanted to move were just compelled to move to a bigger, different house, moving out of apartments, moving into houses. Uh, and, and they also had the money to do that. Uh, there was a lot because we had a ton of savings. So people finally were, oh, I have the money for a down, down payment. Let's get into market. So things did not stay on the market very long. One of the aspects that's changing is things are staying on the market for a normal amount yeah. of time. And so if you go from expecting, oh, if I listed this last year, it would have been sold in a week at XYZ price. And now you're saying, oh, it's been sitting on the market for a month and a half. Not a long time. Got Not a long time at all. But you're more willing to, if you want to get it out the door, drop that price a little bit and, and just get it moving. And a lot of times I think people are still putting those initial um, initial prices a little high, just in the hopes that, that they're still someone buying it. So uh, this isn't it, – it's not doom and gloom sort no. of action. It's, it's, it's really a return to the normal dynamics of a market where – it takes a little while for people to decide to buy. You know, people don't just well, like snap their fingers. And- if, if you're a buyer, this is a good time to be looking. Mm-hmm. And you have some good uh, negotiating position here. Mm-hmm. You can look for a house mm-hmm. that has been on the market for a considerable time. You can think about, well, it maybe it's in a great neighborhood, but it's not my you know ideal house. But it could still be a great investment for you and a great place to raise your family. So think in those terms. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. An archive of all our past shows is available at moneytalks.mpbonline.org or to listen as a podcast, just search for Money Talks on any podcasting app. You can email the show as well. Send it to money at mpbonline.org to fill the time between your calls. We all have got some good content this morning and we're talking about credit. So, Nancy, why do you think it's important to maintain good credit? Well, these days, it's hard to do much of anything without uh, some sort of credit. And certainly, if you're ordering online, buying in a store, you know, even now, when I go to um, a food truck, oftentimes, they'll say, we don't take cash, which is surprising to me. Um, We do still run into people who operate with cash, and that's fine, but it's very difficult on larger items. So if you want to buy a car, you want to buy a house, you're going to have to borrow money. And your credit record will determine whether somebody will loan you the money, first of all, and then how much are they going to charge you for that money. And you want the best rate possible so you can buy the most car, the most house you can possibly get. And that is all determined by that credit record and that credit score. And so it's really important to maintain your record and score just as well as possible, maintain the record, keep it as pristine as possible, pay your bills on time, do everything that you need to do, because this will affect everything. And not just borrowing money, but, you know, you want to rent an apartment. They're going to start looking at your credit. Um, 
getting utility type things, getting a new phone, they're going to look at your credit. They're going to pull your credit. So it affects everything that you do. And one good point about the interest rates, better credit, you're going to have a lower interest rate, and interest rate is the cost of money. Yeah. And so if you need to use someone else's money for something, uh, even just on a temporary basis like a credit card, then lowering that cost is beneficial to you. So when we talk about credit history, Ryder, if someone doesn't have a credit history, what are the, some ways that they can go about trying to establish one? Yeah, this is the trick, isn't it? We, Nancy over here saying you need credit to do everything. Yeah. You need credit to, to buy a hot dog from a food truck. And But how do you how do you prove to somebody you're fresh out of college, you've never had a, had a job or paid a regular bill because you haven't had to? And what do you do? How do you demonstrate that you are a good credit, that you are trustworthy? and good with money. So uh, first, just make sure it is true. You have no credit history. You can get a free copy of your credit report, uh, annualcreditreport.com. You're entitled to one from each of the credit reporting bureaus. We'll talk about a little bit more of that later. But you can just make sure that's where every credit event shows up. So any credit accounts you have, that's credit cards, that's loans. That could be student loans for a lot of people in college. If they have a student loan in their name, that's going to be one of the easiest loans to get. They also so I, I generally think they have very good repayment terms. Um, if you have – any accounts like that will show up. Anytime that you've applied for something should show up on that as well. Um, if you have a checking account with a bank, that could help you get approved for a card. Uh, banks offer a lot of financial services. They offer personal loans, checking, savings accounts, all of this stuff. They also offer credit cards. They may, especially if you've been a customer for a long time or maintaining a certain balance, they may offer you a credit card or they may – if you apply for one, they may offer you a personal loan if you apply for one. And those are both credit instruments. They may be fairly restrictive at first just because you don't have any other credit history to back that up. Uh, another option is some banks do a and, and I know some banks around here do it, and it's a great service. They have credit builder loans where you essentially you deposit, say, $1,000, and then you're given a credit card with a, a hard thousand dollar limit and as you show that you're responsible with it then after a certain amount of time usually a year then it becomes unsecured you can you can withdraw your cash you can keep spending money on it and and it's just a regular credit card and so that's a really great way to build your credit i know one bank around here does include some credit education with that so that's a really uh, phenomenal tool for folks so secured cards, secured loans, et cetera, anything to get started on that credit journey. But when you do that, make sure you treat it well. Make sure you're making those payments on time. Uh, make sure with the credit card, you you don't want to be paying just the minimum. You want to be paying, just just pay that balance off the full time. Also, don't use it too much. You got to understand what all the components of your credit score are. Um, having access to credit is uh, unfortunately, a big part of your credit score, but how much you're actually using. So if you get a $1,000 credit limit on your credit card, don't spend $1,000 on the first day. Try to keep that, we always say kind of below 50% is good, below 30% is better, below 10% you're golden. So if you're only keeping about $100 on it, just a couple of swipes a month, 
then that will be the best and help you build that credit. And that's for uh, younger people starting out, but yes. also that applies to people who've damaged their credit mm-hmm. and you're kind of starting over. And so if you've really wrecked your credit, you've had some defaults in the past, mm-hmm. uh, your score looks terrible, then go back to the basics and try doing some of these secured loans. Build mm-hmm. it back. For somebody who has wrecked their credit, time is on your side. Mm-hmm. If you just give it the time and uh, pay your bills on time, uh, make sure you don't default on any loans, then you can build back a right. decent score. Those those bad events will slowly roll off. Um, also, one thing, and I'm not sure if we're going to talk about the, if we're going to have time to talk about this uh, later, but there are some changes coming to credit scores. We we mentioned them last week, I believe, in, in the new credit scores that they're using to uh, for mortgage approvals. And essentially, it just looks at a broader set of data. So it does look at utility bills, uh, in some cases, and rent payments, if those are being reported. So that's, it's kind of iffy sometimes, because your landlord may require a credit check before they rent to you, but then may not actually be reporting to your credit, which is a really disappointing situation. Uh, but they can report that stuff. And that can help help uh, build your credit, especially utilities, cell phone payments. That That's a lot. A lot more people have that, and that can help build that score as well in some cases. You know, I think another advantage of the secured card, because you have that limited uh, amount that you can spend, I think, for, especially for new people just getting into credit, it, I think it could help you maybe build some good spending habits because you know that you've got to stay limited. Whereas if you've got a regular credit card, someone might think, wow, I've got a you know $10,000 oh. limit and oh, go yeah. bananas. But this Absolutely. will kind of maybe help keep you in line. We've got a call on the line. So we say good morning to KJ in Brandon. Good morning. You're on the air with us. So go ahead. Good morning. As it relates to your credit rating, I've wanted to get some clarity on this. I've often heard that now I try not to use credit cards, fake ass, and just maintain really, uh, really, you know, not getting through your debt with credit, but I've heard that you should have a credit card from time to time, use it, you know, and, and pay on it, and that helps your credit score. So I'm a little confused on whether it's better for your credit score to not have any debt, mm-hmm. have good credit, but no debt, but to, or to have a credit card, use it from time to time, you know, pay the uh, balance, uh, you know, timely, mm-hmm. which I'm a little confused on which is really good for your credit score. Yes. So actually having access and using your credit helps your credit. Uh, Just because you were great with your mortgage back in the day and it's paid off and you're sterling credit and you would always pay someone back, you don't have anything to demonstrate that until you have, say, a credit card or another loan or something that you're actively working on. Because just like the bad things can roll off of your credit score, the good things fade away too. So if, if you don't actually have a card that you are actively using, then there's nothing to show that you're still a good credit. Uh, so yes, I think that is, a generally speaking, a decent bit of advice to say, have at least one card, even if you just don't need it at all. Uh, 
use it once a month or use it just occasionally. You want to use it enough, one, to show that you have some transactions on it uh, and show that you're actually utilizing that credit and also so that they don't cancel that card on you. And and another thing, we talk about credit cards a lot as a tool to use in personal finance. Uh, paying cash, great. If you're actually handing over physical cash, great, fantastic. That's very safe and secure for you. Um, one the huge, huge, huge benefit of using a credit card is you are using somebody else's money. And this is this is a huge reason why you want to use credit. You're using someone else's money. And the implication for your day-to-day spending means that if something goes wrong with that purchase, say you buy something online and it never shows up. Say you buy something and it breaks apart the next day and the store won't take it back. Your credit card because you've put that on your credit card, you've put that on JP Morgan Chase, you put that on American Express's money. And American Express is going to go to bat for you because that's their money. And so if you've paid cash, well, then you might be out of luck. If you've paid with a debit card, you might be out of luck. And also another aspect, because you're using someone else's money, is they're going to be very vigilant about fraud. Uh, so especially if you're debating using a debit card versus a credit card, I mean, I advise rarely use a debit card because that is direct access to your bank. If someone has, the cre- has your credit card, they can rack up all they want. And when you figure out you have a long time, you have at least 30 days to say, oh, yeah, I didn't spend that. And the credit card, it's not your, you're not obligated to do that as long as, you, as long as you report that properly. With a debit card, that's your bank account money. And even if you're not obligated to pay for it, even if your bank does go and search and find out, it might be a while before that money gets put back into your account. So when you think of them as a tool, that's super useful. And yes, to have to maintain a good credit score, to build a better credit score, you do have to actually be actively using that credit. All right, uh, KJ, thanks for the call. Responsible use of credit, I think, is a good way to build your credit score. So thanks for your call this morning. You're listening to Money Talks, MPB's show about your personal finance. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotcher-Janderson, president of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. Between your calls, we're talking about credit today and how to maintain good credit. Back to the phone lines we go, though. Off to Hernando. Mike's on the line. Good morning, Mike. Go ahead. Good morning, you guys. A question, please. Um, I have two credit cards, uh, neither of which has been overused until last year when we went through a very disastrous time. Now they're both maxed out. Uh, Two different companies. And one of the companies, uh, between the two of them, I think I owe a total of about 10000 back, which is going to take a long time. And the monthly payments for each one is just over 100 bucks. But one of the creditors sent me a notice and said, how about considering consolidating your credit uh, debts into one, one of, you know, this one, obviously, and for uh, a monthly payment. Is that a wise decision or would the interest rate preclude even doing something like that? Well, first of all, you need to find out if they're offering uh, additional loans to cover all of this debt, what is the interest rate they're going to charge you? And how does that compare to the charges you have incurred already? So go back and Mm -hmm. look at those two credit cards. Do you know what the interest rate is on each of those cards? Uh, Not off the top of my head. I've got it, of course, at home on my desk. Okay, But I I do want to look at them closely because the one bank that sent me the notice said 
consolidated loans for 6.9 percent. Which is a wonderful rate, by the way. Sounds pretty attractive. Yeah. Now, here's the catch on that. Because what we've seen is average credit card rates have gone from about 15 percent to up around 19 to 20 recently. Very high rates because of uh, an inflationary environment. But 6.9 is great. But you need to make sure you read the fine print. Remember, every time you sign Mm -hmm. a credit card application, whether for its new Mm -hmm. credit card or this consolidated, you are signing a loan contract. So you need to make sure what the constraints are. What are the rates they're going to charge you? What kind of payment do they expect? And it sounds like they're expecting you to make a certain payment every month. And if you're not able able to make that payment, will it damage your credit? Will the interest rate jump back up? What are the rules that are governing all of that? But 6.9 sounds really good. Yeah. So yeah, especially over the life of the loan. Yes, absolutely. Payoff. And I'm not, I'll have to look that up because right now I'm worried about maybe consolidating them and having a $350, 400 a month payment. Mm. Now, you know, if, and I'm like, good, good Lord. Yeah, it, and that's the catch on this. Um, if it's something that you're committing to a definite term, for so for credit cards, it's a revolving credit. You just, you know, make at least the minimum. You can do more. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, you just let it ride for a long period of time. But for most debt, there's a definite time period when it has to be paid off. So there's a definite payment. Mm-hmm. And if your concern is... I'm not sure I can make that payment every single month. You may not want to do it. Yeah. Uh, Good advice. Good advice. And one of the kind of general things here is sometimes these consolidation loans will actually just be a loan. It'll be so five years. Right. uh, Here's your payment. Everything is fixed. If you don't do it, you're defaulted on the loan and it's all due all at once. Um, Sometimes these consolidations are actually just another credit card. And these can be attractive, but they can also have a lot of features like Nancy said. If you miss a payment, does the interest rate go sky high? That's very normal. Yeah, with that's a credit typical. Card. Yeah. Um, and also, not only that, but you would have to pay back up interest that you had not paid before. Uh, so one thing to check is, is and, and for the general audience, if you're thinking about these sort of things, is, is it a term loan with a specific payment? If it does have a specific payment, make sure you can afford that. Be confident you can afford that. Um, um, are, ah, very good. Yeah. Very good. Are there I any understand. fees to get into it? Mm-hmm. So this is typical with a credit card. They'll call it a balance transfer. And there'll be some flat dollar fee or maybe a percentage fee, which you know, doesn't necessarily make it an unattractive offer, but does add to that total interest cost that you just have to you have to take that into account. But uh, with the yeah. with the term loans, those are often it's a People are very often comfortable with those because it's a good way to see that balance drop down more quickly. As long as, again, you're confident you can pay that off, confident that you can maintain mm-hmm. that payment, then then those can be very attractive. But, yeah, look at those details. You know, Compare those interest rates. See what those payments would be compared to what you're required to do with your credit card. Um, look for any catch, you know, any, any weird terms. See what the fees are. Mm-hmm. Read the fine print. Okay. Yep. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate that help. Good luck, Mike. 
Good question, Mike. Thanks for calling. We've got some open phone lines looking for your personal finance question this morning. You can always email the show as well by sending it to money at mpbonline.org. So we talked a little bit about establishing credit history, but you want to maintain a good credit uh, history and a good credit score. So, Nancy, talk about how important it is to pay bills on time. Well, your credit score is determined by several different factors, but the factor that is the most important is paying your bills on time. That accounts for about 35% of what we call the FICO, which is stands for Fair Isaac uh, Credit uh, Score there that you have, or Fair Isaac Corporation. Fair oh, Isaac Corporation, corporation. Yeah. yeah, score. Like, what and, is the O? But if you think <laughs> about the second letter in corporation. <laughs> over thirty percent of how that is calculated is based on are you paying your bills on mm-hmm. time? And so if you miss a payment, that's a ding to your score. Mm-hmm. Um and this has happened to me just because so much of my bills, I know they're happening online and I don't, (laughs) I'm not getting something in the mail, which then tugs at me to say, I've got to make this payment. And it's very easy to miss that. And of course, the credit card companies have a vested interest in you missing the payment because there's going to be a late fee and there's going to be a credit charge. Um, And so you want to make sure you just make those payments on time. And it's not just your credit cards and your mortgage Mm -hmm. and your car payments and your student loans, but it also is, as Ryder mentioned earlier, your rent, your utilities, because that can get reported as well. And I think we've said in the past, that's one reason maybe why to limit the number of credit cards you have, because again, if you've got seven or eight statements you're trying to keep up with, it might be easy to miss one. So kind of consolidate and that that might help you out Nancy, do you have too many? You got too many bills coming to the house? Is that what's going on? I feel like I get too much junk mail. I can't have a paper bill coming in. I just... Oh, I'm so used to that. Yeah, but you're a lot younger than I am. And, and, you know, you're used to all of that showing up in your inbox there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Ryder, you touched on this briefly earlier, but uh, one of the other things that is factored in in terms of your credit score is a uh, credit utilization. If you would tell us what that means. So credit utilization is how much credit are you allowed versus how much are you using? So we touched on it earlier when we said, okay, you might be given a $1,000 credit limit. That means at any one time you can owe that bank, that card issuer, $1,000. That doesn't mean you can make you know, well, you could make a $1,000 purchase, but you wouldn't be able to make any other purchase. Or you can make $1,000 purchases or whatever. Um, so that would be using all of your credit. If you had a credit limit, they said, hey, you can spend up to $1,000 at any given time. Of course, you, you pay it back. You get to spend that $1,000 again. Um, but if you spent that $1,000, you'll be using 100% of your allowed credit. And that just doesn't look good. So when you and, and when you think about it credit it's all that relationship between you and the lender. And so if the lender says, "Oh, you can use use $1000." If you immediately use $1000, that does not look good. It makes you look like, "Oh, you're desperate. You probably would have spent more if you were given the opportunity, and maybe that's going to be a risk for getting paid back." So we talk about, "Hey, keep that below 50%. If they have a $1000 credit limit for you, only spend $500 at a time and get it paid off." Uh, that's going to show I'm responsible with it on uh, because I can, on any given time, I'm only spending half of the money that you allow me to spend because we, we want some wiggle room to be there. But it looks even better if you have a lower or lower uh, credit utilization. And so one of the easiest ways to increase, to have a better 
utilization ratios, especially if you've had your card a long time, call the company, ask them to raise your credit limit. They're not always going to do it, but that is one of the quickest ways to say, oh, I'm using oh, just a little over 50%. If they bump my credit limit up a little bit, I'll be using less than 50%. That looks better. That's 30% of your score. Uh, so that's that's almost a third. It's a little less important than just the payment history, yeah. of course, which is just, just the most important thing. But this is very important. It's very important. And if you think about it, you know, lending money to a friend. If they borrow a lot of money from you, if they borrow up to the limit you're comfortable with, then you're going to be a little less sure they're going to pay you back. You know, another tip that we've often given on here is to try to pay more than the minimum. And when it comes to credit utilization, that's important too, because again, the more you pay, the lower your credit utilization is and the better uh, you'll be in terms of the folks that are, that are Mm -hmm. uh, giving credit and that sort of thing. Yeah. You want to keep that balance, that balance, that overall balance down compared to what you are actually allowed to borrow. Let's get another phone call in before the final break of the show. Our friend Mikey is in Mobile. Good morning, Mikey. What do you have for us? Good morning. Um, I would appreciate some enlightenment on this. Um, Is the amount of information, personal information, that you have to give and even applying for credit, Mm. does that balance out with the amount of protection that you would get on a consumer side when you're using it. I, I think so, yes, because that information is already out. All you're giving, all you are explicitly giving the credit card company is typically your name, your date of birth, your social, your address. And they are using oh, that. Income. They, they're they're going to ask for an they, income. They may ask for yeah. income. But, but what they do is they use that information to identify which credit record is yours, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, you could conceivably just tell them your name and they could go find it, but let's be realistic. Unless you have a name wanna, like Nancy Anderson, right? There's probably like 11 of them with your birthday and a really similar probably. social security number. So they're using that information. That information is strictly to identify you so they can go get your credit report. Yes, they do want your income information, Um but it's your credit report, which is already out there from where, whenever you've accessed a loan, whenever, again, sometimes when you've accessed utility uh, payments or uh, rented an apartment or something. So that information is out there. They're accessing it. It is, it is a lot of information. It's very detailed. And it's very intimate because it, if you have a credit card, it shows month to month kind of uh, on a – on a snapshot sort of basis, what you're, how much credit you were using, so how much money you had kind of outstanding. So but, that's very personal. Now, excuse me. Excuse me. But what about the um, hacking, <laughs> which has become a national sport sure. apparently? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, again, the credit card protects you from hacking in a lot of ways. If someone else gets your credit card, then they can spend on it, but they're spending somebody else's money. You're not responsible for that. If somebody gets your debit card, if someone gets your debit card or banking information, they can spend that money and you might get it back. And if you do get it back, it might be a long time. It's it's not just that you know, we can be confident that our bank might you know right these wrongs, but we can't be confident that they're going to do it in a timely manner so that we can pay our bills. And I've been hacked before. Gotcha. I've been hacked. Yeah. I've had somebody grab my card. Uh, odd charges showing up, which is why it is so important to pay attention to those charges coming through. Um, right now, I get an alert on my phone every time my card is used. So when I fill up my 
gas tank, immediately I'm getting buzzed about that. And mm-hmm. I know that is really me. And as Ryder mentioned earlier in the show, the credit card companies are trying to protect themselves against that fraud. So, yeah, we're we're exposed to all of that. But I don't know how you conduct business without it. I really don't at this point. Oh, right, uh, I just lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, kidding. I mean, I'm kidding. <laughs> again, if, if you if you have so you, you could conceivably uh, very difficult conduct business in the United States of America without a bank account. That's possible. People do it. It is not advisable. It does actually make money very expensive because you have. And it limits what you can it do. It limits what you can do. People without banks tend to go to payday lenders when they need more money, and that's hundreds of percent interest versus 20% interest. Okay. So that's conceivable that you could go without a bank. And. And you could go without a credit card. And so, you you know, your money is just in cash in your home. And, I mean, hackers can't get it, but someone can walk into your house. But let's let's just imagine okay. that, that they're not going to do that. And would it be better? Would it be better to have more than one bank? Well, it's not all particularly. Reported. It's not, all reported. So, again, not particularly. What I'm saying is having bank having money in your bank account if you have a credit card accessed versus a bank account being accessed, you would much rather have your credit card accessed by somebody who had ill intent than have your bank account accessed by someone who had ill intent. So, again, if you're going to spread out your accounts anyway, you might as well diversify the type of accounts and include some credit in there where that is somebody else's money. Someone could get your American Express today, spend $10,000. You, you might not notice for a month. And guess what? You can call American Express and be like, that's ridiculous. I didn't pay that. Be like, oh, gosh, Mikey, you're right. You didn't spend that. We'll take that off your bill right now. Somebody spends $10,000 out of your bank account. Oh, boy. That's harder. That's harder oh, to deal boy. with. You might get it back. But it's going to take you a while. You're not going to get it back today. Um, also know that any, you know, all of your information is out there. Um, if you want to open up a new account, you have to give permission for them to pull your credit And so there are regulations that protect that information as much as possible, but we're still exposed. All right, Mikey, thanks for your call. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotter-Janderson and Ryder Taff. Let's wrap up the show with a couple of phone calls. We'll begin by going to Florence. Uh, Denise is on the line. Go ahead, Denise, it's your turn. Hey, um, I'm actually in West Point. Okay, sorry about Uh, that. I got to mix it with the other call, but um, thanks for taking my call. I just have a question. Um, I want to get a home, and I have um, over $100,000 through loan debt, and I have that on the income-based repayment plan. Mm, I was working, okay. but because of health issues, um, I got taken off work, and I'm on, um, I was put on disability, but it's not permanent disability. Mm. So, and in addition to that, um, I'm about to come out of bankruptcy in, like, June, July. So a lot of stuff going on, but I just want to know what type of advice you have as someone that looking to hopefully um, get a home and considering all the mess that, you know, I right. had and have going on. Um, Thank you. I'll, I'll listen offline. Okay, okay. thanks, Ashley. Um, this is a, a tough situation because you do have a lot of debt already. Um, it sounds like it is uh, federal debt because you're on the income-based replacement plan plan, repayment plan. Um, But the bankruptcy is an issue. Um, The disability, because you have limited income at this point, 
And I think you're going to have to give this some time for your credit to be healed. You may also want to talk to a local real estate agent and based on where you want to locate the type of home you want to purchase and get some advice about how do you heal your credit? How do you get to the point where you can qualify for this home? And I think it's just going to take a while for you to be able to get there. So I want to point out a couple of quick things. This would have been a great call if we had this last week. Adam would have, Adam would have, he would have sorted this out. Um, but you might also want to talk to a mortgage person because in, in America that we are, we really do try to get people into owning their homes. And so there are a lot of different ways that even someone coming out of bankruptcy can get a mortgage, can get a, a somewhat affordable mortgage. It might not be the best mortgage, but can get a mortgage that is going to get you into the house that you want. Um, so speak with someone from a bank. Who does mortgage lending? Someone who can uh, all mortgage loan officers, you know, they're 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 different. What their bank can access is different. So get someone who can access different programs, who can really do the work to find out what's going to be good for you. But I want to point out something actually really good about your situation. I know a lot of our listeners were probably like, "Holy cow, one hundred thirty thousand dollars worth of student loan debt," but she's on an income based repayment. Right, that plan. helps. So that limits the amount that she has to pay back as a percentage of her income. So it's really it's it's not going to have a big impact on the amount that she except if she's run into a problem with her income because now she's uh, in a different if job her, situation and she can't make the payments. If her income is low enough, she has $0 payments. That's true, she will report so, that. So so again, with student loans, these are and, and, and a lot of uh, things have been done with a lot of mortgage programs recently to kind of better take into account student loan debt and understanding that those payments are limited as a percentage of income. Because with mortgage qualification, percentage of income is a big deal. Uh, they don't want you to go over a certain percentage for all your debts combined. And that student loan on income base is going to help limit that. Not only that, she's got built-in forgiveness. If she's been paying it for 10 or 15 years, she's she's going to be forgiven soon. Right. Bill Built into the loan. That's not a special plan that we're waiting on Congress for. All right. Uh, we're out of time today. Alan, sorry that we couldn't get to your call. If you would, you could e- uh, send us an email, money at mpbonline.org, and we'll try to get an answer for you. Money Talks is a production of MPB Think Radio, funded in part by generous financial support from listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can visit moneytalks.mpbonline.org. Our podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. So for Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson and Ryder Taff, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to join us every Tuesday at 9 for Money Talks, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.